We see it happening often that people abandon Jesus to pursue something that they have discovered that they want more than him. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14, if you would, this morning. The Bible has numerous examples of people who abandon Jesus for any number of reasons. Hymenaeus and Alexander are two that maybe come to mind. They rejected their faith. The Bible says metaphorically they made shipwreck of their faith. The Bible says Demas abandoned uh, Paul, and I presumably he I presume that he abandoned Jesus too. Although I, I confess that's my speculation, because it says he loved the world more than he did Paul. Or again, I'm going to read in more than he loved the kingdom of God. Now I've maintained since I began to follow Jesus that it's obvious and clear that people who begin to follow Jesus abandon him. There are people who begin to follow Jesus and they abandon him. History is littered with men and women who have begun proclaiming their faith only to fall away and forsake Jesus later on in their lives. In our cultural moment, we see this happen fairly often. It seems almost weekly because of the rapid um, dissemination of information. We, we see it almost, uh, weekly is too much, but we see it very, very often that men and women who have stood tall for Jesus in the past and, and for the Christian faith, they have turned away from Jesus and they have abandoned him. And they want to talk about why they've abandoned him and how they've abandoned him. And we all agree that people do apparently begin following Jesus and fall away. I think everybody in Christendom recognizes that to be a reality. And even for those people who fall away, that, that they at times don't know they're, I mean, they think they're Christians at one point and they fall away. So this morning, if you would, for just a few moments, I'd like you to set aside what I'm going to call the intramural debate over the status of their salvation if they do that. That seems to divide us into camps. And I'm not going to be talking about that today, although I am going to be talking about abandoning Jesus and uh, I, I want to suggest to you this morning that there are really, if you, if you uh, boil it all down, if we, you know, um, parse it all out, I think there's really only three reasons why people ultimately abandon Jesus. And I find them somewhat illustrated in, uh, in the text that we have before us from the Gospel of Mark. And I do now see some guests with us, and I'm glad you're here this morning. And if you just happen to be visiting for the first time, let me just say we're, we're studying the biography of Jesus, which we call Mark in the New Testament. Mark wrote a biography of Jesus, and we've been studying that. We're getting towards the end of it. And we find ourselves not only in the last week of Jesus' life, but we now find himself on the very last night of Jesus' life. And as we work our way through the text, I want to use the text to illustrate for you what I think are, are the three reasons why people abandon Jesus. And then I'm going to talk about how I think we can help strengthen ourselves against these things that may come to play on us at some point in our life. So um, let's begin. The first reason that I believe that people abandon Jesus is because they end up desiring something more than they desired 
they desired Jesus. Now, at one point, they desired Jesus, and they want to follow Jesus, but they abandoned him at some point in their life because they end up finding something that they desire more than Jesus. So in verse 43 of chapter 14, we read this. While he was still speaking of context, there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has been praying. He's just woken up his disciples a third time and said, hey, they're here. It's time. Verse 43. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one, arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they took hold of Jesus and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. And then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him and they caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. There was a time when Judas Uh, wanted to follow Jesus. There was a time when he wanted it pretty badly. And he was so devoted to Jesus that Jesus picks him as one of the 12 who is to be with him all the time. But somewhere along the line, somewhere along the way, Judas came to the conclusion that he wanted something more than he wanted Jesus. And he wanted wealth. He wanted money. He wanted possessions. Now, we obviously can't know for sure Judas' motives, and I'm not trying to say that I know them today, but the Gospels seem to point to his greed, to his desire for money as the motive for which he would abandon Jesus. When Mary anointed Jesus uh, with that perfume or that anointing oil, John tells us that Judas was the one who was the treasurer, and he was pilfering from the treasury. He was stealing for himself. And he, the reason why he was upset was that he lost out on the money that would have been in the treasury had she donated that money to them. When Judas goes to the Pharisees, it says that they agreed to pay him money, implying that he was asking for money. Jesus spoke regularly about how dangerous riches can be. We can't serve God and money, he said. It's hard for the rich man to be saved. So at least at some level, Judas abandons Jesus because he wants money. At some level, he abandons Jesus because he's greedy. Now, I don't want us to focus on on Judas' greed as the, the reason. I want us to focus on this reality that when our will comes into conflict with Jesus' will, We all have a choice to make. And the choice we have to make is this. Who am I going to serve? Who am I going to follow? Am I going to follow my desires or am I going to follow God's desires? And I want to suggest to you that one of the reasons why people abandon Jesus is because they find something that they want that they want more than Jesus. Something that they desire more than Jesus. So people abandon Jesus for a relationship, a relationship they know that Jesus doesn't approve of or that God doesn't want them to have. And so they end up abandoning Jesus for a relationship. Now we've seen 
We've seen just in history where princes and kings give up their thrones for a relationship. I'm suggesting to you that one of the reasons why people abandon Jesus or give up Jesus is because they want something, and it might be a relationship. Maybe, maybe they want to be free from the moral constraints that Jesus puts on them. Jesus says to all of us, he's saying it to you and to me, you cannot serve two masters. You can't have two people in charge. You'll, you'll love the one and you hate the other. It's either Jesus is going to be in charge or someone else. And that someone else that we fight with, listen, it really usually isn't someone else. It's usually us. The person that we want to be in charge is either us or Jesus. And, and I think, it, and this is just Jimmy's thinking, right? But I think it's really hard for people to live in that contradiction. They're claiming to love and to follow Jesus, but they're living a life of hypocrisy and contradiction. And in time, people often choose to abandon Jesus rather than to live that contradiction that they're living. Are you all following what I'm saying? So I'm suggesting to you that Judas is caught in that place. And Judas is going to choose to abandon Jesus for his greed, at least in part. I remember talking to a man who regretted following Jesus as a, as a young person um, because this is what he said, I've wasted my youth and what he meant by that was, primarily what he meant by that was, he kept himself sexually and morally pure during his youth or, or young adult days. And now that he had abandoned Jesus, he said, I wish I could go back and be promiscuous. So really, I, I think at some level, he abandoned Christ because his desire for promiscuity and his desire for Jesus, this one won out and he abandoned Jesus. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus, your gender or your age. It is possible for you at some point in your life to abandon. Now remember, I'm not entering into the intramural debate, okay? But it is possible. We see it happening all the time. We see it happening often that people abandon Jesus to pursue something that they have discovered that they want more than him. Demas loved the world. I think that what that means is Demas loved the things the world had to offer Demas, and he abandoned Paul and Christ. In the parable of the soils, remember the parable of the soils, of four kinds of soils? One of the kinds of soils is a thorny ground. And so the plant grows, meaning the person seemingly has all the outward representation of being a Christian, of being somebody who follows Jesus, but the, the things of the, the thorns of the world choke it out and kill the, kill the plant. I think Jesus is alluding to people turning away from him because there's something they want more than him. So, you know, as, as I bring this, to a, this point to, a, to an end here, I want to ask you this question. Are you wrestling with something in your life that you, you're wrestling, and you know you're wrestling between Jesus and that thing. Because if there is something like that going on in your life, you're in danger. And I would just encourage you to repent. I'd encourage you to address that. Now, just a couple of observations about this part of the story. Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss. 
You know, and most likely he did that because it's nighttime, there's no lights. He's most likely doing that so there would be no mistake in identity. In other words, he's not pointing at somebody, he's going and kissing someone, they're going to know who it is. So that's, re- that's probably the reason why he chose the ki- kiss. But Jesus, not in Mark, but in one of the other biographies, Jesus notes the irony of that. And he says, man, you're betraying me with a kiss? Even though there might have been a practical purpose to it. Here's another observation. Peter is the one who cuts off the servant's ear. We're not told that in, uh, in Mark's uh, biography, but, but Peter is the one. John tells us that his name is Marcus, uh, Malchus, and Malchus, by tradition, became a follower of Jesus, and no wonder, right? Because Peter cuts his ear off, and Jesus puts it back on. I think I'm going to follow Jesus if he puts my ear back on. And the third observation that I made about just this text was, or I want to just make, is this, that at the end of the night, all the disciples abandoned Jesus, at least temporarily, including a young man who manages to escape naked. Uh, he's, he's only got a linen cloth on it, which some people have speculated that he snuck out of the house. He's a young man, snuck out of the house at night uh, to, to go with the disciples. But anyway, he manages to escape. And uh, when, they kept, when they catch him by the tunic, he leaves it behind, or the linen cloth, he leaves it behind and he runs away naked. Now, tradition tells us that that young man was John Mark. And John Mark, you'll know he shows up in the scriptures in the New Testament as the guy who uh, goes with uh, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. And he's also believed to be the Mark that is actually writing this biography of Jesus. And uh, his mother, in, in the book of Acts, we, we read that John Mark's mother's home uh, serves as a meeting place for the early church. So it could be that you know John Mark grew up in a home that was exposed to Jesus, right? And that's how he began to follow Jesus. All right, number one, people abandon Jesus because something comes in their life and they desire it more than Jesus and they, in living with that hypocrisy, they can't do it and they abandon Jesus. Here's the second reason I believe people abandon Jesus. It's because they end up changing their mind about what they once believed. Verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days uh, I will build another not made by hands. And yet their testimony did not agree, even on this. And the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, and you, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned Jesus as deserving death. And then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. Now, I said at the beginning of this that the text would somewhat illustrate three, three points. This, the text here doesn't exactly illustrate my point, in case you're 
thinking with me. The Pharisees didn't change their mind about Jesus. They never embraced him from the beginning. But I think they do illustrate for us, um, if you would, a mind that rejects the claims of Jesus. And they abandoned Jesus because they did not in their minds come to accept what Jesus claimed about himself. But I think they also illustrate for us what a changed mind can look look like. The truth is, the reason many, uh, excuse me, this reason has played a part in which many have rejected Jesus. And this may be part of the reason why Judas changes his mind about Jesus. Maybe he, maybe he changed his mind about Jesus. He obviously changed, well, not obviously, but he, I believe he changed his mind about Jesus. Maybe he went from thinking Jesus was the Messiah, which seems to be the case in the beginning, to rejecting this idea. And then when he rejects this idea, betraying Jesus for money isn't really a hard jump. Now, I, I want to confess to you all, listen to me carefully, it's hard to imagine Judas changing his mind. Isn't it? Or even if his mind wasn't made up from the beginning about Jesus, it's hard for him, it's hard to imagine him not coming to a place of believing that Jesus uh, is the Messiah based on all the things that he saw. Okay? But even though it's hard for me to imagine Judas changing his mind, I am one who affirms and holds to the idea that we are free moral creatures who have a will, and we can act upon our thinking. Why might Judas have changed his mind? I mean, we don't know, but that's the whole point. Judas is a moral thinker who is independent from others. He can make up his mind. He can choose what he wants to choose, and that's the point. Why did Judas change his mind? Let's assume with me for a moment that he did. Or maybe he never came to believe, even seeing all the things that he saw. But if he did change his mind, why did he change his mind? Because he's free to change his mind. We are free to think and to make decisions based on our lives, our experiences, our understandings, and our reasonings. Why did you choose the career you chose? Why do you you choose to live in this state? Why did you buy the car you just bought? I mean, or bought. I, uh, I just, we just bought a car not too long ago. And I mean, I looked at all these and you were, if you were to ask me, Jimmy, why did you buy that car? I mean, I can't honestly tell you because I looked at so many different cars, but we ended up buying that. I made the decision. So my point is, if Judas did change his mind uh, about who Jesus was, why did he change his mind? I mean, I don't know why he changed his mind. Why would he not, why would his mind not believe and based on the things that he the things that he saw, well, I don't know. But I'd like to what I'd like to do for just a few moments is I'd I'd like to tell you why some people who have abandoned Jesus why they said they changed their mind because some people said, hey, I abandoned Jesus because I changed my mind about him. I used to think that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. I don't think that anymore. Let me tell you why I changed my mind. So I want to tell you why they said they changed their mind. And, and, and I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not justifying their logic. I'm not saying their logic's right, good, or indifferent. I'm simply telling you this is what they said. This is why they changed their mind. This is what they confessed to. Some people said, I changed my mind about Jesus because of the terrible and unloving way that Christians treat one another in person online. They said, you know, if Jesus' followers are like that, then Jesus can't be this person that I read about in the New Testament. 
Now, man, I'm telling you, that just sounds like an excuse, doesn't it? Well, I don't believe in Jesus anymore, so I'm going to blame it on all the people who aren't really living for Jesus. But you do remember this in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane not too long ago, we, we talked about this. Jesus is praying for, or maybe we did, maybe this is in John's, John's biography. But when Jesus prays for you and me, do you know what he prays for? This is what he prays. That you and I would be united. That you and I would be one. And you know why he says I'm praying for that? I pray for that so that people would believe that you sent me. Jesus says, I'm praying for you guys to be one so that people all around you will believe, God, that you sent me. So you know what? How we, how we love one another, how we treat one another, I tell you, it has some sort of evangelistic impact on people. So some people say, I changed my mind about Jesus because I looked at his followers. I think that's somewhat of an indictment on us. Here's another reason people said they, they, they stopped believing. When complicated questions of doubt arise in their mind or approach, our approach as believers is often dismissive or canned or superficial uh, to these hard struggles that people are having. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to say here. Listen, doubting, as we've said many, many times from this desk, doubting is not a sin, all right? But we don't do any doubter a favor by just giving them our simplistic platitudes, our here's a verse, you know, don't doubt anymore. I mean, we can't, we can't do that to people. We have to do more than that when people are struggling with complicated questions in their minds. We cannot be dismissive. We cannot be superficial in our answers to them. You know, Chuck, you're here this morning, but it's in my notes. I remember when Chuck and I first began to go out to lunch and he told me his own story. And his own story was when his godly Christian mother died of cancer, he went to his pastor and asked him why. And his pastor was dismissive of Chuck. And Chuck said, that greatly affected me for years to come. Michael, when you were struggling, I felt the weight of your struggles because I didn't want to be someone who simplistically just threw something at you. I wanted to help you. Now, I will confess this, that I did not really know how to help when you were going through some of your struggles. I I wasn't sure, so I prayed, and uh, I did my best to try to not be simplistic. But people say they fall away because... They're, they're having these questions, and instead of us digging in with them and helping them through their struggles, we just kind of throw something at them, and they end up giving up on Jesus. Here's another thing they said. They said the God they began to follow didn't meet their expectations. Now, I can definitely see this one. Uh, you know, I, I don't think anyone comes to Jesus and believes that Jesus is going to just do everything in their life the way they want. I don't think anybody comes to Jesus like that. But I tell you what, I meet people all the time that think that coming to Jesus means that Jesus is going to protect them from the really hard things in life. And, uh, and then when Jesus doesn't protect them from the really hard things in life, they change their mind about Jesus. He, he's not... He's not who I thought he was. You know, as, uh, I went to a, a pastor's retreat this weekend, and uh, a guy came up to me. I mean, I had seen him. I probably had met him. Y'all know my memory. I probably had met him, but I, I couldn't remember his name. But he came up to me, and he said, hey, 
Last, I don't remember if it was last week or recently, he got a phone call that his son had been in a terrible accident. And, um, you know, and he, he said, and for just a skinny second, my life stopped and rushed off there. And his son, you know, was okay. It was a, one of those accidents that could have easily just taken his son's life. At this point, he gets emotional and he starts telling me, he says, you know, I watched you from afar um, you know, when Shep died and, and just how that impacted your life. And he said, I want you to know that when I got that call, the first thing I thought about was you. You know, Here, here's my point. My point is Jesus clearly never promised us that hard things aren't going to come to your life. My sister-in-law is fighting cancer right now. We'll find out Tuesday whether it's the kind that ends her life early or maybe you know, that uh, it can, she can live out the rest of her years. And I hope you'll be praying with me for that on Tuesday. But anyway, my point is, God doesn't promise us protection from cancer or your children aren't going to die or, I mean, I could just go on with some ghastly things that happen to believers around the world. God never has promised, he has never, ever promised us that we will not go through some of the hardest things that you could ever imagine. But what this, he has promised us this, he will never leave us. He will always help us until the day he comes back. He's promised to give us the power of his spirit to be with us. Um, but he's never promised us that you're not going to suffer. In fact, I, I think he almost seems to say fairly often, hey guys, get prepared, you're going to suffer. The New Testament's filled with verses like that. So when people begin to follow Jesus, if their expectations are, Jesus is just going to be my you know, genie in a bottle and nothing bad's going to happen to me in my life, and then when those things, sorrow upon sorrow comes, they abandon Jesus. I remember an illustration by Ray Comfort. Some of you will remember this illustration, but Ray, Ray used to talk about how when we're talking about Jesus to people, and, and, and you pretend Pretend that Jesus is a parachute, right? We, we tell people, hey, put on the parachute, put on Jesus because he's going to improve the flight, right? And he says, then they get on the plane and they got this big old bulky, you know, uh, parachute on their back because he's going to improve the flight, right? And they get on the plane and they're having a hard time walking down the aisle because the, the parachute won't really fit. And then they finally get to their seat and the parachute's making them sit like this. It's not very comfortable at all. And then the, the stewardess comes along with a coffee and she catches the end of his parachute and dumps hot coffee on him. And, and the guy says, man, this isn't, incre- this isn't making my flight any better. And he takes the parachute off and throws it down never to pick it back up. He said, but if you tell somebody as they get on the plane, listen, at about 3,000 feet, you're going to have to jump out of the plane. You know, here's your parachute. Here's your parachute. Then they don't care. It doesn't matter how uncomfortable the flight is. They're not taking that parachute off because at 3,000 feet, they've got to jump out of the plane. Here's his point. If we tell people that Jesus is just about improving our life and not about the fact that he's rescuing us from death, Right, rescuing us from spiritual death and rescuing us from death, death. You know, if 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 we're not telling people that, and and we tell Jesus, we tell people that Jesus just improves your flight, and then when your flight, your life is not necessarily made better by Jesus, but harder, or he doesn't do what you think he ought to do for you, then we tend to throw off Jesus. So um, 
Yeah. So people said, hey, I gave up on Jesus because I had these expectations and I changed my mind because he didn't meet those expectations. One more. And uh, they, they gave up on Jesus because they got, they abandoned Jesus because they got tired of failing him so often. And you got you got to, you got to think with me, follow through this one, right? For many, the Christian life is about loving Jesus and living by his moral commandments. And I want to tell you, that's, that's what it means to me to be a Christian. It means loving Jesus and living by his moral commandments. But I think I rightly understand what that means, but not everyone does. Too many people think it's, it's loving Jesus and it's me adding to what Jesus did to me, living by his, his commandments for me. And if I keep them well enough, he will love me. And in theology, we call that moralistic legalism, right? That people think that God loves them because they are morally keeping his law as best they can. Now listen, um, it's not that way at all. In reality, God accepts us because of what Jesus did. Jesus is the one who perfectly, we even sang about it this morning. We even sang about it in one of the songs. Jesus lived by God's perfect moral design, Right? And then he offers himself, he dies for us, and, and really, we are resting in the work of Jesus. We're, we're, not, we're not loving Jesus and, and, and then trying to do enough with the commands of Jesus that he will accept us. That's moralistic legalism, right? No, we're saying we're resting in Jesus. We do our best to obey him because we're his disciples, but we do that in response to his love and forgiveness, not to obtain it. We're resting in Jesus rather than striving to obtain Jesus' love for us. And despite how hard people try, if that's their understanding of God, that they've got to somehow earn God's forgiveness by keeping his standard you know, in their life, they pray and they fast and they, and they have victory for a season and they fall away and eventually they grow weary of that. They grow weary of failing all the time. And they say, man, this following Jesus is for the birds. It's not for me, man. I can't do it. And they abandon Jesus. No, 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 they've got a wrong understanding of what it means to love and follow Jesus. But they give up on Jesus because they changed their thinking. Because they had some wrong thinking to start with, if you ask me. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but on each of these four things that people mentioned, there's something you and I can, you and I can have an impact on that. Did you know that? So, so here's, here's what I wrote down, just a paragraph. We can live the love of Jesus for others out loud. I'm, I'm telling you, listen, I, I'm, I'm not excusing anybody who changed their mind for any of these reasons. But I am saying that if people change their minds because they look at us and they say, well, Jesus can't be real because look at his followers. Hey, Jesus even said, hey, if you, by you loving one another, people will know that God sent me. Listen, we have a responsibility to love Jesus and love each other out loud. I guess that's why what happened this week when someone calls me and said, hey, I want to I love somebody in our church family. I mean, that just so ministered to me. We can get right down. Here's another thing we can do. We can get right down in the doubts of others and think deeply with them and help them and walk with them and not give up on them. And, and not just throw them a simple thing and go on our way. No, we need to stand by them and help them. And, and the, thing, the third thing we can do, this affects the last two things. We can help people rightly understand God and the good news, right? The gospel. We, we need to help people understand that it is not moralistic legalism. It is not you doing the best you can, and God will accept you if you do the best you can. 
No, God accepts us because without faith, it's impossible to please God. We've put our faith in Jesus and we're resting in Jesus and God accepts us because of that, right? We can help people better understand that and we can also help people understand when they follow Jesus, we can help them understand that this life, I mean, broken stuff's still gonna happen to you. Tough stuff's still gonna happen to you. And, uh, and we, we need to tell, help people understand that as they begin to follow Jesus. Just a couple observations about this part of the text. Notice that they determined to kill Jesus. They determined to kill Jesus. I mean, we, uh, we've seen that in John's gospel all along. It talks about, I think Mark's too, right? It talks about how, I mean, this is their goal. This is their desire. But here it's really clear. They are determined to kill Jesus, even when they can't get false testimony to match. Here's another observation. Uh, when it reads that, that they were making false testimony about Jesus and they quote this little thing here that Jesus said, I will destroy this temple made with human hands and in three days I will build another not made by hands. And it says they couldn't even get that right. And so I just want to make an observation here. I think Jesus could have said exactly what they said. I think he could have actually said exactly that. They don't, they don't understand it. But listen to this, I will destroy this temple made with human hands. And indeed he did, AD 70. And in three days I will build another not made by hands. On the day of his resurrection, Jesus raised another temple. The temple is the body of Christ. The temple are those who follow him. So you could say in a sense that Jesus said, John's gospel tells us uh, that when Jesus cleansed the temple years earlier, one of the things that he had said was that I will destroy this temple and, and raise it in three days. And the commentary on that says he's talking about his own, his own body, right? That he's gonna just, his body will be destroyed in death and he's going to raise it on the third day. I'm just telling you, I think Jesus actually could have said this because I think it's true. Um, what, uh, what he did. Jesus, God raised, raised as in leveled the temple and, and then he raised a new one with the resurrection of Jesus. All right, uh, the, the third observation that I just want to point to is, is Jesus' answer to Caiaphas. Man, I, I, it's just, I, I just, it would have been so awesome to be there, I think. You know, tell us, man, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And then Jesus says, I am and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And Jesus is obviously taking them back to Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man is given an eternal kingdom by the, by the eternal uh, ancient of days, by God himself. He's offered an eternal kingdom. Now, you know, whether, whether Jesus is talking to uh, Caiaphas specifically or whether he's talking to the Jewish leadership when he says, and you will see me, or whether he's talking to all of mankind, here's the point. We will all one day see Jesus is the anointed king and we will see him receive that kingdom from God the Father. And one more picture. Uh, and uh, this, uh, one more um, observation. And this is the picture that Jesus or the picture of Jesus, the creator God. Now picture this, Jesus, the creator of all things, the eternal God, who the eternal being, who had no beginning, who has no end, who spoke everything into existence. He's now become a human. And this creator God allows himself to be spit upon and slapped and beat by this group of self-righteous people whom he had created. That's kind of staggering, isn't it? 
And uh, I just had this thought as I was reading that to you guys, and because I'm, I'm, I'm kind of being, I'm kind of being down on them, right? But I wonder, you know, we, we don't literally spit on Jesus or slap Jesus or beat Jesus, but I, I wonder how often we might disrespect this Creator God, our Savior, our King. I wonder how often we might disrespect Him with how we live. The third, and I'm almost done, so so hang in there with me. Listen. So the third reason why people abandon Jesus is because they are afraid of suffering, or maybe more significantly, they are afraid of dying. Verse 66, while Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maid servants came, and when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And then he went out in the entryway, and a rooster crowed. And when the maid servant saw him again, She began to tell those standing nearby, hey, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you are also a Galilean. And then he started to curse and to swear, I don't know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. We all know this story well. Peter swears allegiance to Jesus earlier in the night, and I am convinced that Jesus wanted Peter to stand strong, but he knows he won't, and he predicts he won't. Now, here's the issue again. Is Peter, and again, maybe you all get tired of me bringing this in there, but I I just, I feel feel the need to bring it in here all the time because I feel the need to bring it in here all the time. Here's the issue. Is Peter fated to deny Jesus? I mean, does God know Peter will deny God Does Jesus know Peter will deny God because he ordained Peter to fail? Because he chose Peter to fail? And I've said it often, I'm going to say it again this morning, I emphatically don't think so. If God is ordaining or causing Peter to deny Jesus, or ordaining or causing Judas to betray Jesus, in my opinion, God is culpable if he's the cause of those things. Now I grant you it's a mystery how God can know everything we're going to do, but not be the cause of it. I grant everyone that's a mystery, right? And, uh, and we disagree about where the mystery is. But, but I don't believe God is causing Peter to deny Jesus. But Peter is afraid that night. And I guess he's afraid of what they're going to do to him. He's afraid of the suffering that might come to him. And he abandons Jesus. He denies him. If we go back to the Garden of, uh, the garden of Gethsemane that night, the young man who fled, he flees because he's afraid. The disciples flee because they're afraid of suffering, maybe death. Now listen carefully. I am not implying to you that suffering isn't a big thing. It's a huge thing. It's such a hard thing. Many people fall away. They abandon Jesus because of the suffering that goes along with him. In the parable of the soils, this is the skinny soil. This is the soil that's very thin. And when, when the plant grows up and it looks great, but when the sun hits it, and Jesus tells us that's the sufferings and the persecutions and all that comes upon you as, as a believer, when the sun of persecution, S-U-N, falls upon that plant, that plant dies, that plant falls away. Jesus warned us repeatedly of this. He tells us to be prepared for it. We have to face suffering and death with faith. It's, it's going to be a choice. And, and I might add that I believe it'll be something that we'll be facing more and more as, as Christians living as aliens in this country. I think it's, 
I think it's going to be more and more. And I'm, I'm not trying to be a, I am not trying to, I'm not trying to say it's going to be anytime soon or whatever. I'm not even going to put it, but I'm telling you, things are changing. And where we've had a bubble for, we've had a bubble for two centuries where Christians can come and we've been protected by the government. And we've been, I, I think all of that's changing at some level. And I think it's going to get worse for us. Here's a couple of observations about, about the text from the story. Notice about this last text. Notice that Peter's denial is progressive. The maid servant, then another confrontation with the maid servant, then a confrontation with the, the, the crowd, and then Peter denies Jesus. I, th- I think it's easier to abandon Jesus incrementally, everyone. I, I think it's, it's easier for us to piecemeal our abandonment of Jesus if we're not careful. If we don't tend to abandon him in, in the moment. We, we tend to, although maybe suffering can do that, right? When, you're, when it's your, hey, confess Jesus or die, you know, for some brothers and sisters around the world. I mean, that's in the moment. But for most of us, I, I think we tend to, suffering can make us abandon Jesus piecemeal. Here's another observation. Peter's denials result in his brokenness. He's not abandoning Jesus in his totality. This is a momentary failure. If, if, uh, I've often thought of this moment for Peter, as I mentioned, you have as well. He's not thinking of the prediction of earlier in the night. He's not thinking about it. It's not on his mind. When the, roast, when the, roaster, when the rooster crows, right? When the rooster crows the first time, it doesn't phase him. He doesn't think about it. I mean, he's in the heat of it, evidently. But when he denies the third time, and that time the rooster crows, and when it does, the, one, of the, one of the biographies says that Peter looks at Jesus. Remember this? And it says Jesus looks at him, and their eyes catch. Can you imagine? And, uh, and uh, Peter's betrayal comes crashing down on him. He's broken. He weeps with bitterness. Peter, Peter makes it back. He's restored. But all too often, people who uh, turn away from Jesus in their suffering, they never find their way back. They're the plant that withers and dies. So I want to end this morning, and I want to give us three suggestions. And these are my suggestions. Uh, the, I want to give you three suggestions this morning how to help us not abandon Jesus, not change our minds, not be afraid of suffering. And I'm going to take them in the three, I'm going to take them in the order of the three that I gave you. So first, when you feel the tension between what you want and what you know God wants, here's my recommendation to us. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it in prayer to God. That's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, I really don't want this. Is there any other way, right? Is there any other way? Acknowledge, that's what Jesus did. Vocally express it. When you're struggling with something that you want more than Jesus and you're feeling this tension that I can't have Jesus and God, the Spirit's doing that, acknowledge it vocally, openly, decisively at that point decide to present your body as a living sacrifice which is acceptable worship to God. That's what Jesus did. He did that in every case, He vocally said, God, I'm struggling. I don't really want this. But then he said decisively, I want what you want and I give myself as a sacrifice to your will. And that's what we have to do too. And and I might even add, acknowledge it to someone else you trust. If if acknowledging it to God is not helping you, acknowledge it to someone else. Bring it into the light, right? If we feel this tension between what we want and what God wants and we're not... Submitting ourselves to God, 
I want to tell you, man, take it to God. Acknowledge it. Acknowledge it out loud to him. And then Romans 12.1, offer yourselves to God as a living sacrifice. And again, I'm not saying that's easy. I mean, if you're in this tension, you're going to find this hard. But that's what you need to do. Rely upon the Spirit. Offer yourself to God to do what God wants you to do. Number two, tackle your doubts and your thoughts head on. If you're struggling with something, seek help from others. If you let your doubts fester, I liken that to an open wound. So if you're struggling with doubts in your head about Jesus, about your faith, tackle it head on. Get help. Open up to a brother or a sister. Come to someone, you know, and and let them help you walk through that. Um, Let let them walk with you and pray with you and and help you. There's no shame in our questions. And, And if one of us was to blow you off with simplistic answers or belittle your struggles, by all means, seek help, seek help somewhere else. Don't seek help from me if that's how I'm treating you. Okay. But, but don't, don't deal with your doubts by yourself. Get help. When, when someone I loved began to abandon Jesus, I, I remember when they were beginning this journey of abandoning Jesus, I mean, they sought all kinds of help from the atheist. I mean, they read everything the atheist had to offer, everything else undermining their faith. And I would say, listen, listen, to, listen to our side. Don't just listen to their side. Listen to people of faith. Listen to people rebut their, their arguments but they never would. I think they'd already made up their mind by that point. I'm saying to you, though, when you're struggling, and maybe you're starting to listen to voices that, that are denying Christ or denying, you know, denying what you've come to put your life upon, you know, make, make sure you're not just listening to that voice. You need to listen to the other voices that can help you with your struggle, with your doubts. So before you make up your mind, let, let others speak into your life. And for that to happen, because your mind is a private place, right? Amen? Your mind's a private place. I don't know what's going on in your mind. You don't know what's going on in my mind. I've got to let you, know, I've got to let you in on the inner me. If I, if I want help, I've got to let you in, right? So if you're struggling, let someone in. Let someone help you. And third... Overcome the fear of suffering by developing the strength of faith. Faith is the victory. There's a hymn that says, faith is the victory, right? Faith is the victory. Faith is the key. Without faith, we can't please God. But without faith, we can't win over against fear. And and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So get to know the promises of God as it relates to faith and fear. So here's just a few. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not panic before them, for the Lord your God will personally go ahead of you. He will, never, he will neither fail you nor abandon you. I have told you all this, so that was Deuteronomy 31. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me here on earth. You will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. That's Jesus in John 16. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear, But he has given us a spirit of power and of love and of sound judgment and personal discipline, abilities that result in a calm, well-balanced mind and self-control. That's Paul to Timothy. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I'm attacked, I will remain confident. Psalm 27. For I cried to him and he answered me, freed me from all my fears. Psalm 34. That's that's probably a psalm of David. I mean, I I think we need to do that too. 
cry out to God. He freed me from all my fears, David said, or the psalmist says. When I get afraid and I'm really afraid, I come to you in trust. I'm proud to praise God, fearless now. I trust in God. Again, Psalm 56. Here's Paul to the church at Philippi. Don't fret or worry. Instead of worrying, pray. Let petitions and praises shape your worries into prayers. Letting God know your concerns. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good, will come and settle you down. It's wonderful what happens when Messiah places worry. Uh, <clears throat> when Messiah displaces worry at the center of your life. Isaiah 41, don't panic, I'm with you. There's no need to fear, for I'm your God. I give you strength. I'll help you. I'll hold you steady. Keep a firm grip on you. So beloved, when it comes to fear, if fear is one of those things that may cause you at some point to abandon Christ because you're afraid of suffering for him or you're afraid of dying for him, then by all means, you know, let the word of God strengthen you. Let your faith be encouraged by the word of God because faith is how you will diminish your fears. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.